Today is one of the most glorious days of the year, Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as the world's rightful king. And the kingship is not something Jesus passively assumes as something that's foisted upon him by others, but something that he claims for himself. He says, when they had approached Jerusalem, Matthew says, Jesus sent two disciples. The triumphal entry was deliberate. Whereas before Jesus evaded association with kingship, he avoided all the accoutrements and fanfare that came with it. Now here, he openly declares himself as king. And the two disciples are sent into the opposite village to find a donkey tied there and a colt with her and to bring them to Jesus. He acts self-consciously here. Although many prophetic passages are filled passively in Jesus' life, this is not one of them. He is well aware of what he's doing. And one passage that Jesus may have sought to deliberately accomplish in his actions comes from Jacob's prophecy concerning his twelve sons. Speaking to his son Judah, Jacob declares, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties the foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. Among the tribes of Judah, or of Israel rather, Jacob prophesies that his son Judah would be preeminent. Your brothers shall praise you, and your father's sons shall bow to you. And from Judah would come Shiloh, obviously a kingly figure, because to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And interestingly enough, this coming ruler is associated with the foal and the donkey. It seems, at least in some shadowy way, that as Jesus orders his disciples to bring the donkey to him, that it's connected with this prophecy. And whereas the Genesis 49 link may be labored, the Zechariah 9 passage is explicit. Matthew provides a quotation from the prophet's writings as the framework through which we can understand Jesus' actions. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, he writes. And so here's the passage in context. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, And the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so these words, in their great specificity, are deliberately fulfilled by Jesus. Entering into, a Jeru- into Jerusalem on a donkey, coming down the winding paths, path from the Mount of Olives, he presents himself as Zion's long-awaited king, who's come to establish his dominion from sea to sea. And so the triumphal entry is political theater. Today's politicians do the same kind of thing. Political theater is really what it's about. When the BLM riots raged in D.C., the president went out to the ransacked St. John's Church for a photo op. He intended to communicate something. I know not what, but the point is, it was political theater. And it's the same kind of thing as the triumphal entry. In fact, after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the text says that all the city was stirred. In the Greek, it literally means shaken or tremble. It parallels the city's reaction when the Magi came asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The passage says the city was troubled by this. And as Jerusalem trembled when the king was born, so now it trembles as he declares his identity. And it seems, at least implicitly, that the townspeople recognized Jesus' claim to kingship. Because in response, they spread their coats in the road and cut down branches from the trees and also spread them in the road. These, particularly the laying down of the garments, were gestures fit only for royalty. When Jehu, an ancient king of Israel, was anointed as king, the scriptures say, they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps. So when Jesus, the massive crowd pouring in for Passover, had found the greater Jehu, the one who was to rescue them from their enemies and usher in Israel's golden age. And so at the tops of their lungs they sang, Hosanna, To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Their hosannas, meaning something like, save now, or save us please, were directed to the son of David. God's promised ruler. The one coming from David's lineage. The one promised from David's lineage had come. And so it's all very exciting. Charged with hope and expectation. But... There is an undeniable element of irony and satire about the whole thing. Jesus declares himself to be king, but the startling thing is the manner in which he does it. We said earlier that the triumphal entry was a political act, and it was, but it was a political act unlike any other. Consider the common convention, a ruler parading into his town with his military beside him and his adoring subjects looking on. This sort of thing is customary in almost every culture. In ancient Rome, there were the triumphal processions. After winning a great victory for the empire, a king or a general 
would ride into the capital victoriously with the conquered in tow behind him. It was a propaganda event promoting the power and the splendor and the superiority of Rome to any other people. The king naturally rode in on his chariot, driven by a mighty war horse. He was bedecked with the outfit of royalty, and etc., and etc. It was a spectacle so glorious that it would have made Romans out of all of us. And in the modern era, these processions are not uncommon either. We may have lost a bit of our militaristic fervor, and rightly so, but nonetheless, the tradition remains fundamentally the same. And so this customary procedure, the the pomp and circumstance of it all, is what makes Jesus' entry so strange. I love the way John Calvin is dumbfounded by it. He writes, In order to lay claim to the honors of royalty, he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. A magnificent display truly. More especially when the donkey was borrowed from some person. And when the want of a saddle and the accoutrements compelled his disciples to throw their garments on it. Which was a mark of mean and disgraceful poverty. So indeed, the triumphal entry is a magnificent display but not for the normal reasons. It stands out as a bewildering thing, not because of its glory, but because of its humility and poverty. Return to the scene once again. Jesus comes riding in, not on a snorting and stamping war horse, some terrifying and powerful beast, but rather a lowly donkey, an animal fit for the menial work of slaves, a beast of burden. He is accompanied not by the instruments of war, chariots, shields, and spears, but his disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, and nobodies. Laid before him are not flower petals and ornate wreaths, but the tattered and worn garments of the poor. An unusual sight, if there ever was one. But what is it all about? Consider the occasion. It is the triumphal entry. Jesus not only declares himself king, but the kind of king that he is. Go back to that Zechariah passage. The world's true king, he prophesies, comes not to conquer and to make war, but to cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. He is not that kind of king, one of the sword and of the spear, but a peaceable king. Something, therefore, about the humility and the meanness of the triumphal entry conveys the essence of Jesus' kingdom. And it might be summed up in the word gentle that we quoted from Zechariah's prophecy. In the Greek, it's the word pros. And scholars say it's probably better translated by the disappearing word meek. Meek is one of those words that only hangs around because it's kept alive in the older Bible translations. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. 
What is meekness? Although the beatitude is not a definition, it grants us some insight. The first thing that we might say about the meek is that they do not possess the earth. They shall inherit the earth, we are told, but currently it is a different state of affairs. Those who have possession of the earth in this age are those who take it for themselves. The ambitious, the violent, the by any means necessary type. In other words, those whom we admire. They scratch and claw their way to the top, and those, who they, and those whom they climb over to get there are the meek. Consider who possessed the earth when Jesus spoke these words. The Romans. Did they claim the largest empire the ancient world had ever seen by playing the nice guy? By charming their way into world dominion? By no means. In Daniel's vision, the Roman Empire is, and I quote, the dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong beast who, and I quote again, devoured and crushed and trampled down everything that stood in its way. They, had possess- they came to possession of the earth, not because they were meek, because they were, in fact, the exact opposite. And so the meek, whoever they are, are the antithesis of those who take things for themselves. They shall inherit the earth, Jesus says. They don't claim it for themselves. They don't assert their right to maintain it. Rather, it's an inheritance. It is a gift that they receive in the Lord's timing. John Calvin defines the meek this way. He says, by the meek, he means persons of mild and gentle dispositions, who are not easily provoked to injuries, who are not ready to take offense, but prepared to endure anything rather than do the like actions to wicked men. His definition is very much in line with Jesus' words. The meek, he says, are those who are not ready to take offense, but instead prepared to endure anything. It conveys the idea that the meek is someone who takes punishment rather than dishing it out. They would rather suffer the domination of the wicked than do like actions and sin along with them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer offers a similar, this time more radical, description. They are the meek who renounce all their rights, all rights of their own for the sake of Jesus Christ. When they are berated, they are quiet. When violence is done to them, they endure it. When they are cast out, they yield. They do not sue for their rights. They do not make a scene when injustice is done to them. They want to leave all justice to God. The meek, in other words are those who refuse to play by the world's wicked game. Those who refuse to return evil for evil. Those who will not strike back. For this reason, the meek do not possess the earth. In choosing not to play by the world's wicked rules, they lose what they could otherwise preserve. They might be able to preserve their standing and power and good name and material goods if they played by the world's rules. If they responded tit for tat, but they don't, and therefore, they don't possess the earth. Therefore, they're dominated. Therefore, 
they're overcome by the violent. Listen to another definition. Kevin DeYoung says, Meekness is a combination of patience, gentleness, and a complete submission to the will of God. Meekness is learning to be self-controlled instead of needing to be in control. Meekness is opening your heart instead of clenching your fist. Meekness is the firm resolve that it is always better to suffer than to sin. Again, that idea of not playing by the world's rules. And so let's be honest. For this reason, we are not typically fond of meekness. It seems too accommodating, too spineless to be a virtue. We are red-blooded Americans. We don't like our heroes to be pushovers, our politicians to play nice, our athletes to be too friendly. We want just the opposite. But that's to misunderstand meekness. According to worldly eyes, to hearts and minds still operating according to the course of this world, meekness is weakness. But to eyes that have been enlightened, to hearts and minds operating according to the kingdom, meekness is strength. We think meek, and what comes to mind is someone who's unwilling to take a stand, too cowardly to say something when it's demanded of them. That's far from the truth. Jesus was meek and gentle, yet he rebuked the hypocrites. He stood up to the Pharisees. And we'll find out tomorrow that he cleansed the temple. It's wrong to associate meekness with weakness. Meekness, rather, is a particular kind of courage. It's a particular kind of strength. It's the courage to do nothing, and to leave judgment to God. What's harder, to take matters into your own hands and to respond, or to leave matters to God? It's a particular kind of courage. It is the silent suffering that Jesus endured the day of his crucifixion. He bore the violence of wicked men and uttered no threats in return. He yielded to the slander of the arrogant And prayed for their forgiveness. He accepted utter humiliation. And did not defend himself. As the scriptures say. Isaiah chapter 50 verses 5 and 7. This is Jesus himself speaking. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was not disobedient. Nor did I turn my back. I gave my back to those who strike me. And my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have sent my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. In these words, meekness is not defined, but exemplified. Our redemption, which we are to celebrate here in a few days, is not accomplished by Jesus' self-assertion and dominance not by lording it over, but by his powerful meekness. He trusted the Father, and so gave himself over to his persecutors. This, church, is the nature of his kingship. The meek king, despised and rejected by men, 
but choice and precious in the sight of God. So picture the crucified one. The most shameful and inhuman sight there ever was. Then picture above him the inscription that reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Indeed it is. This is Jesus. That one on the cross is our King. Our crucified King. And so another dimension to the irony is that the crowd's praise and acclama- is the is the crowd's praise and acclamation. As Jesus strode in on the donkey, they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. But the irony is that they were praising him for something other than he truly was. The people were all we are all uh, well aware of this expected a quasi-military king, someone to lead a great conquest against Rome and to restore the nation to its rightful place. They saw Jesus riding in on the donkey, and they thought, this is the one, and they praised him as such. And they were right that he was Jesus' king, or the Israel's king, rather, but they were wrong about the manner of his kingship. We, however are not mistaken about the nature of Jesus' kingship. He rules from the cross, and his kingdom is a meek kingdom, and we are to worship him and to be obedient to him as such. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, The renewal of the earth begins at Golgotha, where the meek one died, and from thence it will spread. When the kingdom finally comes, the meek shall possess the earth. It contradicts, all worldly expectation, but true blessedness, or rather true boldness and strength is meekness because it is trust in the Lord. And the day is coming when the proud and the violent will be disinherited and cast out. Then the meek one himself will cause us, his meek ones, to inherit the earth. But we also said in addition to the irony, there's an element of satire to Jesus' triumphal entry. It's defined as the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. An example of the effective use of irony, and not coincidentally one that I love, is the Babylon Bee. Anyone familiar? Allow me to read you a few headlines for your edification. Fisher-Price releases My First Peaceful Protest playset with the house you can actually burn down. Or this one from yesterday. Mr. Biden, why are you a total loser? Asks new White House reporter Ronald Crump. These, this is satire. The sheer ridiculousness of all, the ridiculousness of it all makes the point. And makes it powerfully. It deliberately exposes the silliness and the stupidity of people's views. And in a sense, the triumphal entry is designed to do the same. Jesus' meekness and poverty, the meanness of the whole event, exposes and mocks the pretensions of men. It shows our aspirations for power and glory to be what they really are. 
foolishness and vanity. How ridiculous are military parades, our pomp and circumstance, our sense of self-importance is in light of Jesus' humility, the one riding in on the lowly donkey. And God has chosen meekness for this very thing. On the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. So as demonstrated in the triumphal entry and ultimately the crucifixion, God has chosen the weak, the base, the despised, the things that are not. Why? In order to shame the things that are wise and strong. In other words, by coming in meekness and humility, Christ has judged the power and wisdom of men and made it to be nothing. It's mocked and it's laughed to scorn. The chief purpose behind it all is so that no man may boast before God. The cross has taken away all means of boasting. Because on it, the idea that human power and wisdom and ambition are the means by which change is accomplished is done away with. Rather, God has chosen to redeem and rectify the world through shame and through meekness and through death. In light of the triumphal entry, in light of the crucifixion, our pride is brought to nothing, reduced to dust and ashes by the humility of God. He exposes our power as weakness, our wisdom as folly, our glory as shame, not by demonstrating the superiority of his power and wisdom and glory, but by himself coming in weakness and folly and shame. The world is turned upside down. The meek shall inherit the earth. And this reversal the upsetting of the world's order makes demands upon us. And what demands does it make on us? That from henceforth our boasting be only in the Lord and the things He has chosen. We are not to make our boast in the might of our nation, in the ingenuity of our race, or the superiority of our economy, but only in the crucified Christ. And neither do we boast in our own wisdom, or our moral uprightness, or our apparent superiority to others, but instead our weakness. We say with the Apostle Paul, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, with insult, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We make our boast in the king who came not on a fearsome war horse, but a lowly donkey, who chose not the proud, but the meek. As Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. 
But as much as I love mocking our vanity and glorifying in the weakness of, Christ, of the cross, that's not the only reason why God chose meekness. The former zealot, Saul, turned slave, Paul writes, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So speaking to the church, the apostle exhorts us to restore our brothers and sisters caught in any trespass. And we are to do so in the spirit of gentleness or meekness. We are not to berate or accuse the one among us who has sinned, but to deal, te- but to deal tenderly and compassionately with them because we are told, and don't miss this, they are caught in sin. They are not, in other words, hard and deliberate dealers in sin, but those who have succumbed and fallen to weakness and fallen prey to sin within them. As theologian John Webster says, what they need is help, not reproof. They need, not to, be built, they need to be built up, not crushed. They need to be brought back into the company of the holy, not sent packing, because they've done what the rest of us would have probably ended up doing in their place. But the ultimate reason we are to restore brothers and sisters in a spirit of meekness is because that is how God in Christ restored us. That's what's demonstrated in this coming week. The king who comes lowly riding in on a donkey. The king who accepts reviling and those who pluck out the beard and those who mock him and says not a word. That's what's demonstrated. Bear one another's burdens, the apostle says, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. As he has done for us, we are to do for others. Jesus brought us out of sin, not in severity and domination, but in the spirit of meekness, a spirit exemplified in the triumphal entry. As Jesus himself says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, And my burden is light. And all the scriptures, I was so surprised to find, this passage is the only one where Jesus himself tells us about his own heart. His inmost being is humility and meekness before God and men. And as such, he restored us. And so let's not despise meekness, for it's the very heart of Christ. And by it, we are saved. Charles Spurgeon once said, Our Savior, who never sought the praise of man, says of himself, I am meek, because he desired to remove the fears of those who trembled to approach him, and would win the allegiance of those who feared to become his followers, lest lest his service should prove too severe. He in effect cried, Come unto me, ye offending men, ye who feel your unworthiness, ye who think that your transgressions may provoke my anger, come unto me, For I am meek. I fear to ask what would become of us if Christ were not meek. What if instead of allowing men to trample him underfoot, 
he returned to us what we deserved? What if, instead of bearing our sin, he came to press its full weight on us? What if, instead of stooping to wash our feet, he left us in our filth? But because he is meek and humble of heart, we will never have to ask those questions. And praise the Lord for that. And we do. We praise you, Jesus. For although you were the most exalted for our sakes, you became the most lowly. For although you are properly majestic on our account, you became meek. As the hymn says, right on, right on in majesty, in lowly pomp, right on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, thy power and reign. Let's pray.